You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. We are live today with Avi Mayer. I'm pronouncing it. It's Mayel, but I'm going to use yeah, Mayer. Perfect pronunciation. Well done. CEO and co-founder of Travel Perk, and it is a groundbreaking business travel platform offering companies of any size a one-stop shop to book and manage all their travel in one space. 133 million bucks raised. Most companies can book in 10 minutes. 2019, one of the fastest growing SaaS companies in Europe. Avi is based in Barcelona. Well, I'm going to let Avi actually introduce himself, but first and foremost, Avi, how's it going? Doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well. Welcome and thanks for asking. I first heard of Travel Perk when I was speaking at a SaaS conference in Dublin. I think we actually use you guys. I don't know if we do. Um, I think you do, yeah. Yeah, which is awesome. But Avi, I mean, tell us a little background on yourself and how it's led up to you know you doing what you're doing now. So you have like five, six hours. I always uh, promise that I'll, I'll be quick and then I end up talking <laughs> for like four and a half hours. I try to be quick. So I'm from Israel originally. I'm a technical you know, person by background. So I started coding when I was very young and I was always passionate about let's say, the more engineering side of technology and product. I've been in travel for 15 years, so this is not my first travel rodeo. I founded, together with a friend of mine, Christian Enestrom, a SaaS company before travel called Hotel Ninjas, which you have to agree is the coolest name ever. <laughs> of Hotel course. Ninjas. That was yeah. before Ninja became a popular term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was right, along the, right in the same time. So Hotel Ninjas was a SaaS for hotels. You know, that's it's an operational, it's a property management system. So basically, that's what they would use to manage the hotel, assign you a room, you know, get the, the housekeeping in check, etc. So that's the, like the operating system of the hotel, let's say. And then we sold that business to Booking.com, the Priceline Group, back in 2014. And then I left after a year to start Trapper, together with two colleagues from Booking.com. And the idea behind Trowerperk is that we're looking at a huge pain point. Nobody likes the travel solution they have, regardless of what they are. Nobody likes it. And it's a huge market. We're talking about $1.5 trillion BC, you know, before Corona, uh, $1.5 trillion. My prediction, my, my very public bet, that 2021 will be actually a growth year compared to 2019. That's a pretty ambitious <laughs> bet. Most of the industry disagrees with me, but that's what makes it interesting. So that's my bet. And you made and this bet as a post-COVID bet, correct? I made it, yeah, a few weeks ago. Got it. Actually, the peak of COVID, fear, I would say. Not the peak of COVID, the disease, but the peak of COVID, uncertainty and fear. And what we do is basically we solve problems. So we are, as you correctly hinted, the fastest growing actually globally now business travel platform. And we provide mostly to mid-market companies. So companies spending in the range of you know, 50K dollars a year on travel on the low end all the way up to customers spending 10 million plus on travel a year. Companies like Farfetch and Adyen, maybe some of the companies that you're familiar with. Monzos, we are, I think every fintech company right now in Europe is using us. And we help them with their business travel. So self-serve, you think about it, Expedia, Airbnb and booking all together, but for business travelers, not for holiday. How do you guys make money exactly? How does it work? The model has been pretty established in this industry. So you have mostly two revenue streams. One would be commission, right? So this is not a markup. Basically, if I sell you a hotel night for 100 bucks, the hotel would pay me a percentage of that. So that's a commission that is very well established in the travel industry. Different verticals pay differently. So you know, accommodation pays 
well, 15 to 25% is on what typically hotels pay in commission when you book with orbits.com. You know, that's what that orbits would get from the hotel typically. And then flights have no margin, so they pay very little. So depending on what you sell, you get paid different amounts. So that's one revenue stream, that's commission. The second revenue stream is products that we sell, SaaS, basically a SaaS model, only that it's we tie to volume rather than to number of users. Users don't really make sense in our world. You can use traffic for free and then you don't buy anything. We could just get paid from the commission that I mentioned, or you can use Trailbreak Premium, which gets you better SLA, better service, basically commitment from us, or faster service, I should say. The service level is always what we call seven star, but faster service, commitment, integrations, you know, the typical stuff you need as a more kind of a bigger company in that model, we charge around 15 bucks per trip, uh, flat, regardless of what you book with us, and you get access to our 24-7 in-house customer support, travel agency, in addition to the platform and the features. You might have a complex answer to this because you guys have a lot of different ways to charge, right? So let's say I'm on the lower end, spending maybe 50 to 100 grand a year on travel. How much can I expect to pay as a company to you guys to manage a lot of it? So again, it's a general question. So do you have like a general answer for it? Yeah, it's actually something that you can calculate. You just take how much you pay to us, putting aside how much money we made from these kind of commissions that are not incremental cost to you as a traveler. You just take the amount of money you pay to us and you divide by your travel budget and you get to a percentage of cost, let's say. You can do it only at the end of the year, of course, because it's volume driven. But we are typically around 20 to 30% cheaper than the standards in travel agency terms. You know, if you compare us to like the old world, like American Express, maybe, so that would be like 20, 30% cheaper. And we're talking about something in the range of 2 to 4% of your travel budgets that ends up being paid in commission. It's not really a way that the travel industry has looked at it in the past. So very few companies, only the more sophisticated companies really, in how they do procurement, looked at this cost like this. And the problem, by the way, that one of the problems we're fixing is a lot of it was completely invisible. Remember how kind of, you know, banks used to be in the 80s, where in the 90s even, where you would go and they would charge you shady fees. You deposit a check and they charge you a fee for that. Something invisible really fees, yeah. <laughs> and they tend to accumulate really quickly and, and kind of sum up really quickly. So that was actually difficult. If you look at the pricing charts that these old school travel agencies would send their customers, about 20 pages of different fees that would pay. If you call them regarding a flight that you booked offline, out of office hours, you pay a certain fee. If you call them in office hours about a hotel, it's a completely different fee. Right? It's impossible to actually calculate. Really. What are you holding right there? That's just out of curiosity. That, uh, sorry, that's my access card. Yeah. Oh, I was like, what is that? But yeah, I'm, I'm actually in the office. I'm very weirdly, you know, given that. I'm, I'm assuming you're alone, right? Because a lot of the people I talk to on this, it's usually just the CEOs in the office alone. Let's say we were very few of us today because we don't yeah. force anybody to go to the office yet. Very few. You know what's crazy? My friend just, I think he has COVID now. It was only like a handful, like maybe three or four people going to the office and then he happened to get it, which is crazy. He um, went there and he caught COVID in an empty office. That's what we wow. think. By the way, he's part Israeli as well, but we're all supposed to see him today. But anyway, that's a separate thing. So what, what kind of, it's mild. I think he should be fine, but it's crazy. What numbers are you at liberty to share around the business right now? So I talked about $133 million raised. What can you share around employee size, growth rates, revenues, anything you're okay sharing? So employee size, we are around 400 people today. Uh, these are full-time employees. We also have outsource, back office, you know, in Manila kind of stuff, but full-time employees are around 400 today. We actually didn't lay off anybody during COVID, which is unusual in our industry. We did use the furlough mechanism with a partial follow, so we, we reduce the working hours of mostly the volume-driven roles like customer care and sales to maybe from you know full-time to maybe two, three days a week-ish. We didn't do layoffs. 
So we remain the same size, more or less, as we started the crisis. In terms of growth, I'll zoom out from COVID for a second because everything is different now in this weird moment we are living through. But where company is growing very fast, we started a business in 2015. We started selling this product in 2016. So we've been in business for four years now. And we have grown, let's say, the average yearly growth would be in the range of four to six X, depending on which year we're talking about. Wow. So growing very fast, getting to tens of millions of dollars in ARR equivalent and hundreds of millions of dollars of what we call GMV, which is basically the transactions on the platform. Side question. I do want to talk about Israel and Barcelona. So why, we'll come back to how you're reacting to COVID. Yeah. Why did you pick Barcelona as a place to build travel perk? So I have the, you know, the nice answer I would give investors in a pitch, but here, you know, we, we are more friends. So I'll tell you the real answer. And the real answer is my wife decided. <laughs> so we moved here, as I said, you know, I'm from Israel. I moved to, to Paris actually first. And then that's where I met my wife. She's French. And then we moved to Barcelona 10 years ago. And the reason we moved here originally is because there is a great business school here called Yese, I-E-S-E. And I wanted to do my MBA and I wanted to do it in Europe. So I was looking around at the ranking, finding the best schools in Europe. I'm a sucker for ranking, you know, for going to the most difficult school and trying to get in. And Yese is always, the school is always top three in Europe. So you have London, you have INSEAD, and you have Yese. And each year is like, you know, they rotate the first and second or third place. So I figured I'd go to one of the best schools. And... That was the reason we moved here. That was 10 years ago. Since then, I graduated, worked in a company, founded another company, sold that one, started proper. And sometime, I cannot really put the finger when, but sometime it moved from being, I asked my wife to move here for my MBA to her saying, we're staying here because it's awesome to live here. We have two kids, six and three-year-old, and both were born here in, in Barcelona. We really like it here. The quality of life is great. And it's just a very fantastic place to start a business in. Uh, weather is great. You have great talent. And it's a very easy hub to commute anywhere. If we don't have a pandemic, I rarely actually, you can rarely find me in Barcelona. It would be mostly commuting between London, uh, the US, Berlin, where we have our offices and our operations. So Barcelona is just a great hub. Pre-pandemic, people would be like, oh, you got to be Silicon Valley, LA, or probably not LA, New York, maybe Tel Aviv as well, right? But now people are like, oh, okay, people realize don't need to be in the, we can kind of be wherever we want now. So I guess you just mentioned you're finding good talent in Barcelona. And we talked pre-show that you're not a native Spanish speaker. So I guess for you, not knowing the native tongue, how are you recruiting the great talent around you? Because that's everything. There is, of course, some kind of self-selection there, right? Because we operate in English as a company and everything from the job description onwards is in English. So there is already a natural selection there or self-selection by if you're not comfortable applying, not speaking English, then you just don't apply. So we're missing on, let's say, more Spanish developers, engineers, you know, product people who are not comfortable working English. But on the flip side, it does kind of automatically create a company that is more diverse and we have... Out of these 400 plus people, I think something like 80% are not from Spain. So this is a very international company, which we love. You know, it's just a part of our culture and it's something we really appreciate. Yeah, so you find your niche, I guess. Maybe if we worked in Spanish, we would have better, you know, for sure we'd have access to a bigger pool of talent and which then means that we can hire better people of scale. So we're kind of limiting our pool, but we're also not going after, you know, thousands and thousands of employees. We try to be more efficient. So. Let's say in San Francisco, you might be paying 150 grand for a mid-senior level engineer. How much would you be expecting to pay in, in Barcelona? Around a third of that. Around a third. Got it. 
that's gross. Yeah, I mean, depending on again, it's a range, right? But that's got it. Yeah, the way we look at it is whenever somebody raises in our space, somebody raises X, it's as if we raise three X and we can do the same thing. Just to confirm, you said a third, right? So that would basically just be fifty grand instead of one. Yeah. Your dollars go a lot further. So the 133 you raise might be times three. That's awesome. Well, let's go back to, I guess we're talking about cities and then I want to jump into COVID. We talked about Barcelona for a little bit, but maybe I'm generalizing here, but every single Israeli person I've worked with, they're very focused. And for whatever reason, they get things done and they're just incredibly successful people, right? I just wanted to ask you, because I've actually never asked this question before, what part of your culture has made you, because I'm just kind of generalizing here, I'm like, it has to be a cultural thing. It's like the way they work and it's just, they get things done. So anything you can speak to there, I'm just curious. Yeah, it's one of these topics that that's, uh, everybody has an opinion about why, you know, you have a book called Startup Nation, I'm trying to explain why you have so many tech, especially tech entrepreneurs coming out of Israel. I mean, the numbers are crazy, I think. In terms of absolute, not relative, it's not per capita, absolute numbers of companies listed on NASDAQ that are not from the US or Canada. I think Israel is number one, but it's, you know, it's a few year old statistic. Maybe now China is number one and Israel is number two, but China is slightly bigger country than Israel. I would say we don't have the hours and I don't have the entire knowledge to explain exactly, but my guess would be we are okay with things that are not perfect and we want to go fast. And that's something that it might be a generalization, but that's something I've seen very recurring between many Israeli friends that are entrepreneurs is we don't wait for something to be perfect to release it in many cases. And again, like if you're in you know, biomedical devices, you should probably go for perfect. But if you're in SaaS, you don't have to wait for perfect. We'll live and start measuring things and seeing how it works. And we just want to move fast. I think that this urgency, Israel is a country that is very stressful to live in because of that aspect of everything has to be fast. Everything, you know, people don't have any patience. Go, Zero. go, go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it translates in some areas to actually with outcome. If you have no patience, you'll build companies faster, you'll fail faster if you have to fail, and then you can iterate you know, faster. So just the cycle, I think, is shorter in that case. I love that. Yeah, Jeremy from LinkedIn says, good is good enough. Barry said, did you lose many employees for lockdown? He actually talked about that earlier. I do want to come back to COVID again. So obviously travel space right now, not the best time. So you mentioned furloughing people. And what I found in talking to other founders, at least in the United States, is people that generally get furloughed, I'm not speaking for you, but people that generally get furloughed, they're like, yeah, we're probably not going to bring them back. I guess my question, the broader question is, how are you dealing with the current climate knowing that your space is getting hit pretty hard right now? Yeah, so a few things. One is the plan is definitely to bring them back. And the follow, just to be clear on what it means here, they get paid 80% of the salary. You don't get unemployment. So wow, some of the 80%. Yeah. yeah, so the way it works is we reduce someone to 30% work time. So they get paid 30%, work 30%. And then the government pays them unemployment benefits for the 70% uh, reduction. But instead, it's, it's capped, and the cap is not super high. So we as a, so let's say it's ten percent, thirty percent from the company, ten percent from the government get paid forty percent. Then we top you up to eighty percent. So we go out of pocket. We don't have to, but we think that's the right thing to do. So we top everybody up to eighty percent, regardless of how much they actually have to work. And I wouldn't do it, of course, if I didn't have plans to bring the people back. Right? It would be silly. We would just go and do layoffs. And the reason we decided to go after conserving the team and our culture. And I think it goes hand in hand, right? Like if you replace the team, it's not the same culture. Like you take the 400-ish people in the company and you put 400 new people, the whole culture is different. You know, the, the building is the same, the name is the same, but the culture is different. So the reason we decided to, to preserve the culture and the team is one, because we care a lot about our culture and we think it's, it's amazing and we don't want to lose it. And it's probably the biggest part, you know, if you try to explain 
the fast growth and success so far of, of the companies, I would assign it to the culture and team. And the more practical point here is business travel is not going anywhere. I did this conference yesterday and asked, we did the same conference last year. So this year we had to do it on Zoom. Last year we did it in person in Stockholm. And I asked by a show of hands and nobody, like CEOs, nobody had any incentive to lie. Show of hands, who would prefer to do this meeting, the, you know, the 30 of us, in person like last year versus in Zoom, saving you. So Zoom saves you the, the travel time, saves you the hustle, the cost. Who prefers to do it on Zoom versus in person in Stockholm? Everybody raised their hand. Everybody wanted to be in Stockholm in person. We all get it. We get that the human connection is required to move the world forward. Right? It's something that is so inherent to our species. It's not going away because of virus. You know, we are now afraid, we're scared. There is a deadly virus in the streets and we have to be careful. It wasn't the right moment between March and June to travel anywhere in the world. But this is coming back super fast. And I look at the numbers now, and it was a bet to not lay off people maybe three months ago when we decided it. But now I look at the numbers. It's not a bet anymore. It's obvious. You know, we have grown. Everybody's learning how to extrapolate on financial growth now because of the virus. So if you take our numbers and our growth rate and extrapolate to, to infinity, we will be a trillion-dollar company <laughs> by, by the end of next year. So jobs aside, the numbers show us, these are leading indicators that show us, and I talk about them on Twitter almost every day now, uh, the numbers show us that we're definitely are on a path to recovery. And if that's the case, then we will get out of this crisis much more stronger compared to everybody else who, in our industry, who did, in a way, kind of, I would argue, panicked or, or freaked out or didn't have the cash to do what we did and had to let go 20, 30% was, was the kind of the average you would find in our industry. They had to lay off people. It would be very difficult to hire again. Can you share some of the numbers you've been sharing on, on Twitter? I'm just wondering, because you guys have all the data, so you can see, okay, March happens, boom, everything drops off. What is it looking like? What can you share that might be helpful for people? I think the latest stat I shared yesterday was Spain travel. So Spain as a country was suffered one of the most severe lockdowns you know, because the virus had a severe effect here, especially in March and April. Just an example, my kids have stopped going to school. They couldn't go to school, right, in, in, starting in March 14. And they haven't gone to school since. And we are now June 18. So I think it's the only country in the world that where kids didn't go to school for the past three months. Travel is still forbidden. You cannot travel out of Spain right now unless you have a very good reason. The country went into a very tough restriction, and we've seen 16 times, 16x growth in revenue, our revenue, in Spain travel. So Spain originated travel. So it could be domestic or it could be international starting in Spain. And I'm talking about a month. So between a month ago and now, that's 16x, 16x growth in revenue. And you see it all across. You see it in all of our core countries. You see this kind of, this is pretty extreme, 16x, but you see very fast week-to-week growth. I shared another stat last week, I think I shared it, where we saw a week of more than 60% week-on-week growth. That's global, not just for a specific country. And I'm talking about revenue. So you see these kind of crazy numbers all around now, the same way as we went. By the way, we went from, as I mentioned, very fast growth year on year to at the bottom, we did something like probably 5% of the same revenue a year before. So that's a 95% decrease year on year. That's the bottom. So take everything into consideration. You know, the, the entire industry basically grinded to a halt. And now we're seeing this super fast growth out of this crisis. Which is crazy. Yours is mostly all business travel, right? Yeah. So people are getting ready to gear up again. So Yeah, they are. And, and a lot of the trips are booked. It's interesting because you see the bookings happen for tomorrow. So, you know, Germany now, you can travel, you know, almost without any, almost without any restriction inside the country. It's a country that already had 
domestic travel because Germany is a very kind of distributed country. So you travel for work from Munich to Berlin, from Berlin to Stuttgart or Stuttgart. So you have these kind of trips happening in the Dach region. So you see these kind of trips coming back even faster than we expected. This is almost same day trip. And the other extreme is you see people booking for October, November. Right? And that's actually an interesting part because we have a product that we created. It looks like we actually had a crystal ball. We had predicted this pandemic and we didn't. We created a product called Flexiper. And we released it last year. What Flexiberg does, and that's actually the first company and the only company, as far as I'm aware, in this industry that does it, we aggregate the entire volume of trips from all companies, not just your company. And then we use machine learning to estimate the risk of cancellation, basically how likely you are to cancel this given trip. And then we can do it on a trip-by-trip basis. What we offer to the companies is the ability to cancel a trip or change a trip for any reason. So it's not an insurance, right? For insurance, you have to come and justify why you're canceling a trip because, you know, God forbid you have to go to the hospital or something, you know, severe medical condition, whatever. With Flexberg, you just, I don't feel like it is a good enough reason. So you don't have to justify why. You click on the app, you just cancel a trip, and you get your money back. So this product, in normal times, is very appealing to C-level who change their plans a lot, investors. So this kind of, it was like the niche product for them. And then COVID comes, and suddenly everybody needs a tool that reduces the level of uncertainty. That's what it does, if you think about it. So you can now book for November without fearing. I'm in business travel, and even me, like, I'm afraid to book for September because I don't know if I'll be able to travel or not. And if I don't travel, it's just, I lost the, you know, in many cases, you, you lose your flight ticket, your Uber book, whatever, you know, your hotel booking, whatever you booked, if it's not a refundable fare. And refundable fares on average cost 68% more than non-refundable fares for exactly the same seat in the plane. Just refundable versus non-refundable. So for a small fee, use Flexiper, which is you know, it's much cheaper than buying a refundable ticket. And your entire trip, not just this one trip, the entire company trip becomes refundable. So yeah. the level of uncertainty gets lower. So that's kind of the two edges that we see. We see people booking today or tomorrow and people booking for October, November using Flexiper. These are kind of the two behaviors you'll see right now. Has the usage on, you call it Flexiperk, right? Has that gone yeah. up significantly post-COVID? Yeah. Yeah, so right now, I like that you said post-COVID. Like, let, I hope that you're right. We are post-COVID. Basically now, some people are even, I shouldn't say it live, but my marketing will kill me. But some people are even say, let's change the company name to Flexible. Because right now, everything we do almost is Flexible. Wow, okay, amazing. We're working towards wrapping up. I have a couple more questions. I think it's really important. You talk about culture. I mean, you know, once you get to... I think it's really only over 50, 100 employees or so. Culture is the main thing, right? So... A, what does culture mean to you? B, what are some unique things you're doing to foster an amazing culture? Thanks for that. I love talking about it because that's basically where I spend most of my day. And by the way, this is not stuff you think about as you're starting up a company. And then it's like, yeah, especially as a technical person, you think that this, all this kind of touchy feely culture stuff, it's, you know, BS and you have to focus on fixing bugs and building features. And then you realize that I realize that I'm not the best developer in the room anyway. So let, let, you know, great developers do that. And I can focus on what I'm slightly better at. So the way we define culture at Firepark is I took the Jim Collins definition of core values. I don't know if you're familiar with how he talks about core values, that, you know, like the things that you stick into core values when you have something to lose, not when you have something to gain. Right. That's the definition of core. So we take personal core values. That's how you know, it's excess we did at the beginning of the company. We were probably 10 of us at the time. We literally wrote down on a piece of paper the core values we have as people, as individuals. And then we look for an overlap of the core values of us as a group. And since then, we just hire based on that list of values. So 
our culture is defined by five core values that we hire based on. Sometimes, unfortunately, we even have to let go if they are not respected. And what are your values, just so people know? So the first one is seven-star experience for the customers and the team. So the idea of amazing service, we're proud to provide great service. And that's something that sounds more maybe interesting to American ears, but here in Europe, it's kind of a cliche that how bad the service is in France and Spain, you know, and it's actually true. We are proud to provide great service to, to the customers and the team. The second one is impact over efforts. We really care about the impact you, you generate for the end user. Third one is be a good person or don't be an asshole is the alternative way of saying that. And the fourth one is we're a team. Work as a team, you win as a team, you lose as a team. Even in, in sales, by the way, we don't celebrate individuals, we celebrate teams, which is, I would argue a bit unique in, when you think about sales. And the last one is we are owners, so ownership is a very important part of, of how we do things. Got it. I love it. Yeah, so sorry, I, I derailed you what you were saying, but those are the core values. And then, yeah, unique. And the culture is easy, right? If you have real core values, and core, like real core values are, for me are a difficult thing to create. Because in many cases, we just write what makes sense, or we copy from another company which is completely the wrong way to look at it. You have to look inside, not outside, when you come up with core values. I find that once you have a real set of core values that people actually, you know, people feel aligned with and they feel that the core values represent who they are as a person, then everything else is easy. Just hire based on the values and, and let go based on the values. You know, and everything else happens by itself almost. You know what's interesting? I mean, when we did this exercise a couple of years ago, it was the leadership team in a room writing all these words that we think we are. And then we narrowed it down to five or six words. But it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just repeating what you said, I think. You have each individual write down what's important to them. And then you put all the words together and you will find the overlap. So you're basically, you're doing it with the whole company. We did it at the like it's, it's really tough to do it now, right? So the way we do it now is we, we look at it at the hiring process. Um, so now it acts as a filter, whereas before we distilled the values of the original team that was there. So it, it says we did three times, I think, in our histories. We did it when we started, and then we did it twice more, you know, a couple of years in between. But it's not something we do every day. We just what we do every day is hire based on it. So when you say you did it three times, did it change pretty significantly the second time and the third time? Yeah, you know what changed? So we removed stuff. We had more values in the list. And then we realized, and the funny thing is, the three extra values we had there, we had copied them. We, you know, we called it inspiration. We didn't say copy. Yeah. And, you know, the founding team comes from Booking.com, as I mentioned. And we took, Booking doesn't have a list of values. It has what they call formula. Booking is a very Dutch company. And the Dutch are great in execution. So they have the formula for success or the formula for growth. And we just took some elements of the formula of Booking.com that we liked. We thought they represent us. And lucky for us, we managed to get rid of those that were just a copy. Mm-hmm. And we kept those that were really reflected in who we are as people. I don't think enough people do that. So three more questions from my side. I think before we started recording, I don't know if you said this when we're live, but you have a prediction for what's going to happen in travel. So let me just preface this. What I've been looking at, you know, there are a lot of the analysts out there are like travel's not going to come back till 2023. So what's your response? What is your prediction for 2021? So my prediction, just about the bottom line, my prediction is 2021 will be larger than 2019 if you take global business, I'm talking about business travel, and I'm talking global business travel expenditure. Right? So what companies spend on business travel. 2021, larger than 2019. It's an opinion that I think I'm probably one of the only ones in our industry that holds it, which makes it more interesting to talk about. Yeah. But it's not the consensus, right? As, as the consensus is more like the analysts you, you mentioned. So that's my prediction, yeah. Cool. Predictions have to come from the numbers that you're looking at and your engineering brain as well. So yeah, I hope you're right, actually. And by the way, I just want to say the predictions I was saying is probably more general travel 2023. So Avi here is specifically referring to business travel, which I think 
to me, I think there's a shot. I think it's a low shot, but we'll see what happens. You could be I right. I wish I would. And by the way, like the 2021, 2019 is like, it's funny to have this bet and have, I actually have the bet running now with a few people because I'm, I'm very public about it. What's really interesting is the underlying point, which is human nature that didn't change because of the virus, right? People need this connection. And this is not going to go away. Travel will come back. The question is, is it this year, next year, or the year after that it's coming back? We're not switching to Zoom. Like, this is not a thing. And by the way, I'm a Zoom shareholder. Amazing company. Please continue to be successful because as a shareholder, I'm happy that it is. Same. But it's, yeah. it's a different use case. Right? It's not the same. It's a transaction. It's not a relationship building. Well, I'm telling you, I've been calling all these calls, but there's times where I get up to 14 to 15 calls where at the end of the day, it feels like a, like a Friday. Every day feels like a Friday. You know what yeah. I mean? A lot of people don't really take time off. And then you realize with all these Zoom calls that you actually need to take time off now. So anyway, it is yeah. what it is. That's the fatigue. What's the book that you'd recommend to everyone? It could be a business book or it could be a fiction book. What would it be? It's tough to recommend one, right? Uh, but, but the book that changed, I would say the book that made the, the, the most impact on how I think and operate, maybe it sounds tactical, but it, it wasn't, is a book called Chris Vaughn. So that's the author and the book is called Never Split the Difference, I think. And Chris is... I actually listened to the Audible version first, and then I read it. And he reads uh, the Audible version. It's pretty amazing because the guy ran the FBI hostage negotiation unit. So he knows something about negotiation, right? Like, not from the business world, from like, like life of those situations. And it's an extremely practical book about human psychology. So I really enjoyed reading it, and it changed how I, I think about negotiating. And everything in life is negotiation. Just It changed everything in how I think about it. You know what, what's crazy now in negotiations, you start to see people start to use these tactics. How am I supposed to do that? Or the mirroring and all these things, right? So I listened to the book and then he actually has a course on masterclass, which is not too expensive, right? And he actually goes through how he does these things. And I think it's super important if you've listened to the book or read the book that you see how he does it and then you start to implement them. But I would just recommend that you change yeah. the words up a little bit because if people realize that you're executing on a tactic, it's going to totally That's, like piss them off. It's funny that you said that because for a long time, so I read the book and I felt I shouldn't recommend it to anybody because yeah. I don't want anybody else to use it. <laughs> it's such a good book. I like nobody should know about it. So we give a book to people when they join the company and I kept giving them Delivering Happiness, the Zappos book, you know, which is mm. really kind of aligned to how we think about Seven Star Experience, you know, the, uh, the value that we have. And for a while I was like, should I change Delivering Happiness? With, you know, and, and I started giving Chris Vaughn book. I don't, actually, I don't want the employees to have it because then they'll negotiate better against yeah. us. Yeah, but then, but then like, no, screw it. Like, such a good tool for life. Like, and so we're giving two now. We're giving this book. And, and, oh, that's and awesome. So you give them yeah. delivering happiness and never split the difference. Correct. Got it. That's awesome. And favorite tool to grow your business not called Travel Perk? Favorite is different than what we use the most, right? So Slack is what we use the most these days. I don't enjoy social media and I find Slack to go too much in the direction of social media. I think if somebody from Slack is listening, that would be... The riskiest part of the strategy, it drives adoption, of course, and usage, but long-term, it's an issue when you try to get people to use your system as much as possible. I actually like when people don't use Travelbird too long. I like when they use it fast, book a trip, and move out of Travelbird to something else in their day, or even back to spending time with the family or friends or whatever. So Slack is what we use the most. I really like Notion. I think it's a bit cliche to say these days, probably. A good friend of mine, David Apple, joined them early. He told me about this tool when nobody yeah. knew it. So it's in a hipster way, I would say that a new notion before many other people. Thanks to David yeah. Apple. You know what's interesting before we hop off? You talked about not really using social media that much. But what I find fascinating, you mentioned Twitter, right? And I've just been thinking about this over the last couple of months. Twitter to me is the most valuable social media platform. 
because uh-huh. all the smart people are hanging out there. And so I, so I guess the <laughs> question also, would be- But also the dumb people. <laughs> yes. You have to learn how to filter it right, and then you get all the smart people. It's funny because when I started the year, so I hate new resolutions, but I had one for myself this year, which I typically don't. But in the one I had for this year was to stop knowing what's going on in the world. So I didn't know what's going on in the world for a while. And then, you know, things actually happened here locally in 2017. I don't know if you heard about it, it was like this Catalan and Spanish crisis. So yeah. I needed to know what's going on to decide if we're keeping the company here or moving it. And it's so addictive. You just get sucked into the news cycle and then something else comes and something else, something else. And then, and then like, you know, three years later, I'm still in the news cycle and it gets you angry and hateful. And you're like, I hate this. Like, why do you, like, you know this person? Why do you hate them? Like, my new resolution for myself was disconnect, go back to my bubble, focus on my family and my work, and that's it. No more news. I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't want to know what's going on in the world. It's fine. Like, you know, the world will do well without me. But then COVID happened. Actually, like it sounds like it wasn't this year, but Qasem Soleimani was the first moment of the year where I was like, maybe I should know what's going on because my family is in Israel, and there is like a World War Three starts, you know, like and all of them need to come to you know live with us in Barcelona. Maybe I should know. Like, so Qasem Soleimani, and then I, for some reason, I started following the Democratic primaries in the US. I don't even you know I don't vote <laughs> in the US, obviously. Why would I follow that? You know, like, so for some reason, I follow that. And then COVID, I really tried to go back to not knowing what's going on in the world. So shutting off social media is a way to not know what's going on in the world. So Got it. That's a big part of not going to Twitter anymore, but I'm not as disciplined as to go to Twitter. Twitter's great if you know how to filter it, but it sounds like you at least are doing kind of that a little bit. So Avi, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Uh, I was going to say Twitter. Tropic.com. Tropic.com <laughs> this way. <laughs> and Twitter. Avi Mir on Twitter. All right. Avi, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Eric. Cheers. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.